Good morning, Midland Free. My name is Pastor Jeremy. I'm the preaching pastor here, and we are delighted to have you as we continue our worship this morning. As you can see, I brought uh, one of my favorite little things with me. This is an illustration, but it's also helpful for keeping you in the front row awake during the service. But uh, hopefully it will have that effect by the end of the day. This, of course, is a s'more stick. Okay, that's translated a few steps down. It's a marshmallow roasting fork. Um, who doesn't like marshmallows, right? This is one of my fam... Okay, except for you. <laughs> well, that's probably good that you don't like marshmallows. But for us, marshmallows are a big deal in my family, and we really like them. And the only thing that could possibly make them better is adding fire. Marshmallows, fire, success. Delicious summertime treat. Well, what happens is this. We have a one child who's absolutely convinced he makes the best s'mores or marshmallows in the entire world. He's convinced that he can roast them perfectly all throughout, and he does a really good job. And the lesson I take away from it is this, is that uh, basically uh, fire can be one or two things. It can be good or it can be bad. In the case of a perfectly roasted marshmallow, it is excellent. Fire does wonderful things. But in the case of becoming out of control, fire does terrible things. And so as I think about fire, I think about all the implications contained therein. And I think, for example, the good stuff about fire, well, it kind of goes like this. Fire creates warmth. Fire provides light. Fire is mesmerizing and it draws us together. We gather around a fire and all of a sudden we're drawn in by its warmth and its light and its heat. And we come together and we all sort of fixate on it. And then for some reasons it just sort of opens us up. And we're able to talk and communicate in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have under other circumstances. It cooks things, it purifies things, it creates memories and bonds and it's absolutely beautiful. Fire is an amazing thing. But fire can also be a horrible thing if it gets out of control. It spills over and destroys. It burns. It hurts. It ruins homes. It destroys forests. It takes lives. And it does incredible damage. Uncontrolled, fire destroys everything in its path. So when we think about fire, we want to be careful how we talk about it because in some instances, some circumstances, we'd say fire is good, fire is great. But then we'd also want to say, well, out of control, fire is bad. So we don't universally condemn it and we don't universally approve it. Instead, what we say is within certain bounds, this stuff works and this stuff is great. Now, just so you know, I'm not talking about sex this morning. Okay, you got that. Thank you. <laughs> I'm actually talking about anger. Anger. And what I will say is this, is that the Bible uses the biblical imagery of fire to communicate regarding its um, nature surrounding anger. If you think about fire, for example, in my family, if we're going out to roast marshmallows, I've got little kids and they think fire is awesome, and so they want to just, you know, jump 
right in and stir it up and poke it and throw stuff on it. And I'm, you know, kind of the safety dad, so I'm the guy who's got them out there wearing their safety vest and their helmets and carrying fire extinguishers and going up to this thing. Like, whoa, hold on, guys. But I don't want them to get hurt. And so when we talk about fire in our house, some of the stuff we do is we'll, like, set up the campfire, and, of course, we put a ring around it. You can use, of course, metal or stone or brick or whatever you want to do, but you want to contain the fire. And then for me, I dig, like, a moat around it, too, right? Like, Water, so that if any sparks come out, instantly they're absorbed. And I teach my children then, when you're around fire, yeah, this is a great thing, and I'm going to let you build it, and I'm going to let you start it, and I'm going to let you work with it, but I want you to understand the nature of the beast. Like, this is a really cool thing, but at the same time, it's something you really need to respect. Within bounds, it's good. Outside, it's bad. So when you're around the fire... You need to be mature. You need to be responsible. You need to show self-restraint and control. We can play football over here in the field in the grass, but when you get around the fire, there's no running around and goofing off and being silly because all of a sudden you're not paying attention. You can fall. You can knock someone else in. You could knock our lighter fluid in or whatever. It could create a problem. When you're around this stuff, you have to be mature. You have to be responsible and you have to be careful. Fire has its place. And in its place, it's good. But when it's out of control, it burns and destroys everything in its path. So too with anger. Today we're looking at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. And it's a text that says this. There's a slide of it up here on the board. And it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. Today's sermon topic is godly responses. And I started with the idea of anger because the way I'm going to approach this is sort of a backdoor sort of approach. When I look at this text and I say to myself, okay, what makes us respond poorly? If we want to respond well, what is it that causes us to respond poorly? And I think in a lot of situations, what happens is that feeling inside when you're like, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but it's that feeling that's inside of you when you don't like something. And all of a sudden, when you start feeling that, then it's really hard for you to respond correctly. And so what I what I'd like to do today is sort of approach this, come up with the right answer thing from the rear, because if you. If you start from the front, it's really simple. You know, use a soft answer. And you're like, okay, done, tried that, failed. Why didn't it work? That's what we're going to work around today. That answer is found in Proverbs 16, verse 32. It says it like this. This is how you get to a soft answer. This is how we get there. It says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes refuge or takes a city. He, whoever is slow to anger, is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So again, the way I'm going to approach it is basically in two steps. Number one, I'm going to start with this. This is your structure for today. I'm going to start with anger and address that, spend a lot of time on that. And then number two, our response to situations we don't really like 
or how, how do we deal with that? And then I'm going to give you three action steps on the end of that response. So talking about anger first and our response to others. Now, this is a beautiful, I think personally, this is a beautiful sermon in the sense, not that it's because I wrote it, but, but actually because it's something that applies to all of us universally. I mean, I don't care if you're 120 years old or if you're 12 months old, you're going to be in situations where you need to respond well. This is intensely practical. It's deeply theological, yes, because you follow this beauty of biblical imagery, but at the same time, it's very, very practical. You're a human being. That means you're in some relationship with somebody. That means at some point, someone's going to do something you don't like, and you'll have the opportunity to practice this this week, or maybe even today. And certainly, I come at it from the perspective of saying, let me tell you, if there's any sermon, I start by saying I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. <laughs> you know? I have children, and I'm a weak and sinful, fallen human being, and I mess up. And bottom line is, I respond sometimes in ways I do not like. So I'm sorry, buddy. I love you. I know I've blown it a number of times on this. I apologize. I'm a mess. You're a mess. We're a mess. Here we go. We're all in it together. Let's get better. Proverbs chapter 15. Here's the theme, and this is the way I'd like it to go today, is using those structures, anger and response. I want to start off with this theme and say, Anger is fire. And number two, then, soften your heart to control the blaze. Anger is fire. Soften your heart to control the blaze. Beginning in Exodus chapter 4, verse 13, this imagery starts very early in the biblical narrative or biblical storyline or the way that God develops His truth. And it's this. When God is talking to Moses, He says to... Yeah, uh, when Moses basically said, I'm not sure I really want to do what you told me to do, God's not feeling so good about that, right? God is feeling, erg, right? So automatically that tells us the erg feeling itself isn't necessarily bad. You have physiological responses built into you based on the fact that you're made in the image of God. That's okay. That's not a sin. The erg is not a sin. God feels that. And here it is in Exodus chapter 4, Verse 13, Moses like, nah, I'm not sure I want to do this. Maybe you got it wrong, God. I'm not the guy for the job. God, God's response, it, when Moses says, oh, Lord, please send someone else, it says in verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Now, that's not talking about e-reader, right? <laughs> this is not your Kindle. This is talking about fire, you know, like the stuff with you do with the fork and the hot dog, etc. The Lord's earth burnt inside of him. He felt that. He's like, Moses, I've been telling you, you're the guy for the job. What do you think? I made a mistake in my almighty, omniscient, all-knowing, super-sovereign power. I just blew it on this one? Moses, you're the guy. The anger of the Lord was kindled against him. God was on fire. Now, Let's approach it like this. Uh, there's two things that we said about fire. One is it's good, and two is it's bad. So let me show you then how in the Bible, particularly with God and then with us, it is good and then it's bad. Guess who it's good for? It's good with God, and sometimes it's bad with us. Anger, just like fire, can be good and can be bad. 
With God, it works like this. What's very interesting is you read that verse, and here's what it says. Pay careful attention to detail. Detail lovers unite. Here's something very interesting. Verse 14, it says, The anger of the Lord. Of the Lord. Notice that it doesn't say, The angry Lord. Right? It says, The anger of the Lord. Lots of people who are outside of this biblical framework point their fingers in and say, Christians have an angry God. Old Testament, look at him. He's fire-breathing dragon coming down to smoke his people. Does the Bible say that? Anywhere? I would, I would say absolutely not. Does God have anger? Yes. But it's entirely different than what he's accused of being. Instead, grammatically, what you see is this. This is the anger of the Lord. And there is an enormous difference. Here's a slide. Let me show you. Is it the anger of God or is it an angry God? Because what I'll say to you is this. If it is the anger of God, then notice the difference this makes. Then number one, according to to my theory here, is that anger, if it belongs to God, is his possession. It is something he owns and controls and has power over. But if it is an attribute or a descriptive thing, then it is something about the way he is. Does the Bible say God is angry? Or does it say the anger of God? Later, I'll show you a couple verses which say what God is is. But there is a difference between being and possessing. And here, I want to I frame this in terms of possession. The anger is something that God owns and has control of. In other words, he controls it. It does not control him. And there is a big, big difference. It is his possession. He is its owner. It is not his owner. It is the anger of God. Now, what that means in another in in terms of our analogy today is this is if you consider God the uh, the owner of anger. Then what happens is it is somewhat like a light switch or a blowtorch. A blowtorch is, in a sense, by our analogy, it's fire, right? It's very, very hot. And it can do incredible things. It can cut through and it can weld and it can do all sorts of things in the hands of a skilled user of the flame. And at the same time, not only that, but it can turn on and turn off just like this. On, off. Super hot, done. Super hot, done. And it is precise and surgical like a laser. It can do exactly what the wielder wants it to do but he never just leaves it going and sets it down. That is what the Proverbs would say, anger resides in the lap of a fool. (laughs) Because he lights it and just sits it there and lets it sit there. What's going to happen? He's going to get burnt in a bad way. That's not God's anger. God's anger is like a blowtorch or a switch that he can flip on and flip off. Let me show you how. Psalm 85, verse 3 says, You withdrew your wrath and you Turn from your hot anger. Even though it's super hot like a blowtorch, you can just whoop, stop. Done. They repented. I forgive them. Over. Bang. Psalm 30, verse 5. 
Listen to the, um, this is what's called antithetical parallelism. The direct opposites that are meant to draw out the contrast in this point. Listen to this. His anger, that's one thing, is for a moment. But his favor, that's a totally different thing, is for what? A lifetime. Look at the topic. Look at the duration. Anger, boom, shut it off. Favor, boom, flows over forever and ever. Totally different. Anger for a moment. Favor for a lifetime. In other words, what God is saying through this is, look, anger is a couple things. Good anger is, number one, it's God's possession. Number one, it's God's possession. Number two, it is short-lived. So good anger is owned by the owner. And number two, it is short-lived. And number three, it is framed. It is framed. Just like a fire pit has a frame around it, God's anger also has a frame around it. So God owns his anger. It is short-lived anger. And he frames it. How is God's anger framed? By his character. What does God hate? Sin. Anything that's contrary to the law or nature or glory of God. That is what he hates. He doesn't hate goodness. He doesn't hate love. He doesn't hate mercy. He doesn't hate justice. He hates bad things that hurt you. Don't you want a God like that? That hates bad things and likes good things? You certainly wouldn't want it the other way around. God hates hurt. He hates it when you're hurt. That makes him mad. He hates it when other people hurt you. He hates injustice. He hates evil. That's good. That's the God you want. The one who hates evil and assures you that right will win in the end. That's good. You want a God who gets angry at bad stuff. Not because he's out of control, but because he has framed it in so that his anger and wrath are inside this circle, this ring, And anything that falls in it gets burnt up. What falls in it? Sin, wickedness, rebellion, injustice, etc., etc. That gets destroyed. And that pit, that eternal pit, is called the lake of fire. There is God's anger. It's framed in by His character. So good anger are three things. Number one, it is in possession. Number two, it is... Short-lived, and number three, it is framed in. Thus, what you get is something very different from what we ourselves as people display. Now, before I go much further, I need to point this out to you. I'm emphasizing anger because that's a topic, but let's not miss the point. As I said earlier, there's a difference between possession and attribute. Going back to that, God is what? It doesn't say he's angry. It says instead this, Psalm 103. The Lord is, the Lord is, Psalm 103 slide, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now, hey, look, here's how anger works. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. His anger, but he is merciful. He is gracious. This is what God is. Micah 7.18 Who is like you, God? 
pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger because he delights in steadfast love. This is what God is. He is merciful. He is gracious. So his primary attribute, the dominant image for God, is mercy and love. The anger is something that he possesses and wields at the right moment. So anger. Anger is fire. Anger is good when God is its possessor. But anger is bad when it is out of control. Anger is good, A. Anger is bad, B. When the blaze is out of control, that means it possesses us rather than we possess it. When anger possesses you, it is not good. It is not under control. In other words, instead of being short-lived or turned on on purpose, there's no shut-off valve. It's like you sitting there on a rusty bolt or whatever and trying to crank it down and you can't. And stuff is spewing out all over the place. It's like if you're a firefighter trying to hold a high-pressure hose and you're not strong enough and it's just going... And you're spraying everything in in your path but not directing it to where it should actually be directed towards. That's anger. Example, you know, two people are doing something they shouldn't. You're bothered by that. That's fair. But what you're addressing is the sin and not the people. So if injustice bothers you, then good. If bad things bother you, then good. But when you respond to that, you don't respond... In like manner, instead, you overcome evil with good and use soft answers to turn away wrath. That means your anger is under control. But if it's spewing out all over the place, hitting everything in its path, it's out of control. And that's no good. Biblical anger, the good kind, is possessed, it has a shut-off valve, or it is instant, and there is a framework for it to stay in. Here is the contrast between us and God. This is how it's balanced in the New Testament. I think many times when we think about anger, for us, we are, we are so seldom able to rightly apply it that we just universally assume it's bad. Because most of the time, it's out of control. And we're just blowing it. That's why James says in James chapter 1, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Because our anger is just so different than God's. We don't hardly ever get there. Usually what we produce is death and destruction. Our anger is like the fire that destroys everything in its path. That's not framed in. It's not good. It's not holy and just and right. Instead, it's out of control. So for us then, wouldn't it just be easier to say, okay, no more anger? You know, Let's go totally Zen or Jedi on this and focus and meditate and try to transcend and hit nirvana and lose all our feelings. No, that's not the answer. Because in fact, what the Bible actually tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 is be angry and sin not. Well, what a strange command is that? Especially for we who are human beings and most of our anger ends up being sin. How is it that we can be angry and sin not? The answer is this. Soften your heart to control the blaze. Soften your heart to control 
the blaze. In other words, like the Sith or the Jedi, what so often happens is everyone wants to wield the flame, to hold the power. And when you seek after the power, you're actually seeking after the wrong thing. Instead, what you should be seeking after is the emotional restraint. And once you have come to that place, then you're in position to rightly wield the flame. But up until then, you're in trouble. Because you're not in possession of it, you haven't framed it in, and it's not going to be short-lived. It'll get out of control. So what do we do? Well, here are your action steps. I'll, I'll say them first, and you'll see them on a slide. And then uh, we'll go through them one by one. To soften your heart and control the blaze, here's three things that you can actually do. First of all, it's soften your heart. That's another way of saying have a humble heart. I'll explain that in just a minute. But to make it a verb, it's soften. Soften your heart. Number two, forgive. And number three, move on. Humble or soften your heart, forgive, and move on. Let's look at the first, soften your heart. What does it mean to have a soft or humble heart? This is, in fact, if you recall in our sermon series, what Solomon asked for when he asked for wisdom. We automatically assume that he asked for some mental or head knowledge or just some cerebral um, prowess, but the reality is what Solomon asked for in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6-9 through 9, was a lave shema. He asked for a listening heart. In English, it reads like this. And Solomon said to God, You've shown great kindness to your servant David, my father. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I don't even know how to come in or go out. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, and to discern between good and evil. What should fire be upon? For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The first thing you've got to do to soften your heart to control the blaze is have a listening heart. You have to listen. You have to have a lave shema. You have to be willing to hear things that normally you wouldn't. The more you can hear, the more flames and darts and arrows and sparks you can absorb. If you're able to hear, then you've started the process of dealing with the flame. But if you're just too hard, if you're just too upset, you're like, I can't hear this, I'm not listening, no, no, no. That means you're hard. your heart is hard, and that stuff that's on top of it is just going to burn right up. When that flame jumps out, it's not going to be, not, it's not going to be soft, supple, wet, dirt, Instead, it is hard, dry ground. And all of a sudden, boom, it ignites. Because there's all kinds of fodder on it that hasn't decayed. It's just sitting there dry. In order for you to rightly wield the flame, the first thing you have to do is soften your heart. And that means being able to hear, being able to listen. And listening is hard because other people have things that we don't agree with and we don't want to hear and we don't even want them to say especially because some of it actually might be right. And that's the stuff we really don't want to hear. But when we come to a point that we're able to listen and truly say, yep, you're right, I was wrong, then we're in a good spot. That 
is an understanding heart. First of all, be able to listen. Second of all, your willingness needs to result in an ability to admit fault and accept responsibility. A softened heart is a quickness to respond to the conviction of sin with repentance. Look, we're all sinners, right? Anybody in here who hasn't sinned? Why can't we get to the point where we just admit that and say, yeah, I sinned. I did it again. <laughs> wasn't the first time, won't be the last. I messed up, I blew it, I'm sorry. I did. Will you forgive me? I sinned. I blew it. If we can't get there, then instead what we have sitting on the ground is unresolved sin, pent-up anger, frustration, discontentment, lingering feelings, doubt, and all this other stuff. And that builds up into this perfect, perfect fire starter. You've got that hard ground and you've got these sin issues and they're sitting there on top of it because you just pushed them down and haven't dealt with it. All of a sudden, the first little thing that comes, boom, everything goes up in smoke. And you are on fire. You've built it. The only way to deal with anger is to soften your heart. To be willing to listen and then admit your fault. And when you get there, then the ground is becoming soft and the flame is contained. First of all, soften your heart. Second of all, you have to forgive. And, you know, as I talk about this, you're probably all feeling like me, just a little bit like, oh, yeah, you're right, I'm guilty. But one of the first steps in forgiveness is just forgive yourself. I don't know about you, but I can be my own worst critic sometimes and beat myself up more than anybody else does. And when you're sitting there beating on yourself or being your worst critic, you're not helping either. You've got to come to a point where you can say, yeah, I forgive even myself. And I'm not going to hold that against me even if they do. Because the Lord has told me to forgive and I need to get over it. So here we go. And I'm going to start by forgiving me. And when they come after me, I'm going to forgive them too. That's the way it works. You've got to forgive. Number one, soften your heart. Number two, forgive. And number three, move on. Move on. I think my wife will like this illustration. This is for you. All right. There was an old classical violinist in the 1800s, somewhat like the Yo-Yo Ma of today. His name was Ol Bull. He was a Norwegian violinist. Um, Robert Schumann once said of him that he was the greatest of all and he was on the same level as Niccolo Paganini for the speed and clarity of his playing. He was also a friend of Franz Liszt. Anyways, there's more about him, but he is just an incredible violinist and what happens with any musician, as you'd never imagine, is they get criticized. <laughs> they perform up on a stage Music that's written on a page or written in their heart and they do it for other people in a sub subjective artistic experience and some person's like, that was awesome. Another person's like, I don't get it. And the person who says, I don't get it happens to be the editorial critic of the New York Times. They <laughs> beat him up. And one day what the New York Times or the paper, not the New York Times, what the paper decided to do is it said, it was, a, it was actually the New York Herald. Uh, it said, you know, how about this, old bull? We will give you a space to defend yourself and respond to all your detractors. Would you like this week's column to say whatever you want and we'll give you a fair shot, respond to all the criticism? This was his reply. He said this, I think it's best that they write against me and I play against them. 
Sometimes the best or the softest answer is just to act. No answer at all. Just close your mouth and do it. Do what you're supposed to do. You know what you've been called to do. God has made it clear. Step forward and do it. You don't have to explain yourself or defend yourself or justify it to anybody. Just do it. In the acting, you will prove what God has called you to do. Be faithful. Lord has not called you to defend yourself. He's called you to act. He'll take care of your defense. You act. You do what you're supposed to do. What is one of the softest answers you can possibly give is just to do it. Just to move forward in action and trust the Lord for the results. Act. Act. Action is the best answer. It's not harsh. It's clear and firm. Act. Number one, act. Number two, if you have to answer verbally, then you should think about this. A soft answer turns away wrath and harsh words stir up anger. Now, we're Americans and we're individualistic and we like the guy who pulls himself up by his bootstrap and takes on the world and everything else. And so when we think of the word soft, we usually think weak, you know, wimp. This guy, what is he? You know, I want John Wayne or Sylvester Stallone or somebody like that, you know, hard, rock, come on. But the Bible actually portrays soft in a very different way. In fact, what you see in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 15 is this. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue can actually break a bone. That soft is in fact strong. And sometimes soft is stronger than hard. Like water on rock or other analogies, there are ways to accomplish things that aren't necessarily the most forceful yet just as effective. Soft is strong. What married man doesn't understand this? Soft is strong and it is good. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is what? Better than the mighty. Yeah, you're mighty, big deal. Who can rule his spirit? Well, that person can capture a city. They're for real. I mean, the mighty might be able to beat one guy in a wrestling match, but the person who can control his spirit, he can rule the world. That is real power. Soft is strong. This is the reverse thinking of the Bible that you see played out in the New Testament with Jesus who turns his other cheek. Soft is strong. So here we are. Ephesians 4.26 All that's to say, be angry and sin not. (laughs) Be angry and sin not. How do we do that? Well, the interesting thing is this, is Ephesians 6 is actually quoting Psalm 4. So when you roll it back a little and you look at Psalm 4, this is what you see. Psalm 4, 4 says this, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. The idea here is simply this, is that of fear and trembling. This is what you hear in Philippians chapter 2, but let me show you how this looks. Um, For those of you who have uh, this sort of bent, let me show you a slide. Okay? Now this, I'm going to need your help here. Uh, This was my discovery of the week. 
And for those of you who have an engineering type mind or a scientific mind or enjoy formulas, this is what I discovered. When I'm looking at this word, be angry, I see that there are different words for anger in the Bible. And the one I'm pursuing here in uh, Psalm chapter 4 is ragaz. And as it turns out, looking at this slide, you can actually see it. In the red, so the, the section that's in the red, ragaz is translated to shake or to tremble. This, to shake. In the blue, it's to tremble. In orange, it's to shake. So in other words... The, the smallest portion, the little green, the light blue, and the orange, are to be angry. The yellow is to trouble. In other words, the majority of time that this word, be angry, is translated, it means just to shake or to tremble. They, they use it of ground, of earthquakes, of all different kinds of stuff. And the reason I want to point that out is because in that sense, you can be anger, angry and sin not. When you feel that inside of you, that's exactly what's happening. You're trembling. You're shaking. You know, we'll be honest. We've been in elder board conversations where we're in an intense discussion about this and that and this and that. And all of a sudden, there's guys in the room and they're going like this. But the beauty of it is, is we ask that people who come on the elder board know how to do this. They know how to control their spirit. First Timothy 3 and Titus 3 say very specifically, you know, slow to anger and patient. Why? Because you're going to be in an elder board meeting <laughs> and you're going to need it at some point. 930 at night and you're hashing this out. All of a sudden you feel strongly about something someone else does too. And you're like, Brrr. and I've seen it. I've seen guys in there shaking, but still responding well. And it's a really cool thing because what you see is that this is something they're passionate about. This is something they care about and they can disagree adamantly and fervently. But at the end of the day, hopefully they're not taking shots at the other person and they go out and they speak with one voice. Because we want to be open and we want to communicate. We don't want to compromise truth. And we still want to maintain the passions in our hearts that God has given us. Nowhere in the Bible does God say, okay, now just be an old, you know, fuddle-dud or whatever and just be a lump, limp biscuit with no passion at all. doesn't want that. The Bible still calls for passion. The Bible still calls for anger. The Bible still calls for that fire inside of you that says, no, here I stand, that's wrong, and I won't quit until it's done. But the way in which you do that has to be framed in, in your possession, and short-lived. That's why at the end of the elder board meeting, they say, it's over. You walk out this door, and this is where it ends. Done. Short-lived. This is a biblical view of anger. And this is what it means. Then in Philippians chapter 2, when it says it like this, listen, here's how it all ties together. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Bible says fear God, it means it. You stand before Him and you shake. You have passions inside of you that turn you over and get your spirit going and that's just fine. That's totally appropriate. That's how you work out your salvation is in sincere fear and passion before the Lord. You shake. You get angry. You get upset. You move forward. You hate sin. You don't want to do that again. And so you stop and you repent. And you put that ring around it and you build that moat and then you put 
the bad stuff in the flame and watch it burn. Be angry, but sin not. Anger is a fire. When controlled, it's okay. When out of control, it's awful and it hurts people. You want to respond well? Don't just memorize a few good phrases. That's not going to get you there. You absolutely must soften your heart to control the blaze. 